0: Exciting news to report, our event, Inspiring Prevention of Eating Disorders and Body Image Issues is going online. This is an eating disorders training event for sufferers, mental health professionals, counselors, nutritionists, dietitians, personal trainers, and anyone with an interest in eating disorders prevention. And it is now online, bringing people together, sharing a passion for change around these issues. It is an event to inspire, educate, and connect with like-minded others. So why do we need this event? We know that eating disorders are on the rise and many people in our culture experience devastating distress around body image and as a result of this so many people are desperately struggling with their physical health, mental well-being and self-worth and we know that the incidence of eating disorders exploded in the pandemic and we continue to experience the aftermath of this and the Lancet Group recently published research in June 2023, revealing a 42% rise in eating disorders among teenage girls as a result of the lockdowns, with similar rates of self-harm in this demographic. We need change at grassroots level. We need to implement change in society, changing the narrative and helping people to find a newfound understanding around relationship with food, psychology and body image. So be part of this change. We have brought together experts in the field to inspire and educate around prevention of these issues and it's going to be a one-day event on the 30th of September 2023 online. We're going to be having lots of talks and workshops, talking about the catastrophic impact of diet culture, looking at the early years as foundation for good mental health, talking about the hidden eating disorders with 85% of people not being underweight, looking at diagnosis, early intervention and support, talking about issues with men getting eating disorders too around muscularity talking about improving body image and developing radical self-love, understanding a broader definition of health, intuitive eating principles, is sugar really the enemy, finding a healthy relationship with exercise and movement, dealing with diet culture, and lots more. So if you want to up-level your knowledge, be inspired, connect with others from all over the world and be part of this transformation, click the link in the bio of the show notes to get your ticket. Saturday 30th of September, see you there. Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast, this is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating and I'm Harriet Frew aka the Eating Disorder Therapist and I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. So today I'm talking to Florence Taglight. Now Florence is a primary school teacher and mental health lead who has recovered from anorexia nervosa. Now Florence has quite a unique perspective on treatment because she's had treatment in both the UK and the USA. And interestingly, these experiences, understanding the differences in treatment approach, the aspects of culture and education shocked her and has led her to commit to making a difference in this field. Advocating for teacher and school eating disorders training is high on Florence's to-do list and she offers training sessions in schools to help adults learn about early signs and interventions with eating disorders. Now Florence has three dogs who are her world and keep her grounded and she loves nothing more than drinking a coffee surrounded by her furry friends whilst battling diet culture. So in the episode today we're going to explore Florence's recovery journey understanding her unique perspective of experiencing UK and USA treatment approaches in eating disorder recovery and to acknowledge aspects of each approach, which have helped and are helping her to continue along the healing road. We also delve into Florence's education work in schools and understanding how she is supporting adults to detect early signs of eating disorders and the guidance and support she is recommending in this work based on her unique and valuable experiences. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. Florence is clearly passionate about the work she does and I know this conversation is going to inspire and offer hope to many of you. Let's get to it. Hi Florence, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me Harriet. So could I firstly get you to introduce yourself as a listeners, please? Sure, my name
1: is Florence, I am a primary school teacher and I am recovered from anorexia, nervosa, and orthorexia. I have three dogs. I love Dolly Parton, and I am trying to raise awareness in schools for early intervention and eating disorders and also introduce teachers and parents to things to look out for to make sure that we're helping the children in the world to get what they need.
0: Okay, wonderful. Wonderful. So Florence, Dolly Parton, I didn't realise you're a Dolly Parton fan. So have you oh, been... Oh yes, a... my... <laughs> Go on. <laughs> my dog is called
1: Dolly Porton. <laughs>
0: Fantastic. Mm. And have you been a lifelong Dolly Parton fan?
1: Yes, definitely. At my last school I worked at, we had, our classrooms were named after musical people. So we had Yo-Yo Ma, we had Beethoven, mine was Parton. Yeah, and she runs like amazing programmes for children as well. And I think that's what... It is for me is how her imagination library in America anyone can sign up to get a book a month until their child is five. Like, she funds thousands of books, millions of books a month, and I think it's just like her whole journey is really inspiring.
0: Okay, well, thank you for sharing that because so that's something that we hadn't sort of shared offline. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> thank you. So, obviously, you've had your journey, Florence, your own healing journey, recovering from orthorexia and anorexia. So, do you want to just tell us a little bit more about your journey?
1: Sure. So until the age of 18, my eating disorder hadn't come into my life at all. It hadn't even been a passing fragment ever been mentioned because it didn't exist. I ate, I hate the word normally, but I ate and I exercised and my mental health was fantastic and I was fine. And then when I got to 18, I was due to go to university in America. And just a few months before I went to university, the eating disorder crept up on me. And it was during a big time of all the orthorexia trends online, which didn't help. However, they aren't to blame for mine. And I think that just kicked off. And I didn't know how scared I was about going to university in America. And so I would say I was fine and act like I was fine. But secretly, I was really not fine. But even I didn't know it was a secret for myself. And I think that's what's so hard about eating disorders is you can really not believe you have one. And even if everyone around you is shouting at you and telling you, you have one, not literally shouting, you really don't see it. You actually think you're fine. You're completely clouded. And I was going to the doctors, but no, it just didn't work. And until I got to university in America and was left there by myself, I realized, okay, yeah, something's wrong. And so I came home and then I was 18 and I just had to kind of start from scratch there with recovery. And now it's been 10 years.
0: Mm. Oh, thanks for sharing that. So I think really interesting how you said that the, you know, things were kind of all fine and normal. And, you know, perhaps you didn't even recognise at the time that you were really anxious about going to America. And you perhaps hadn't even realised that you had issues with food. Was it all a bit in the unconscious?
1: Yeah, it was definitely unconscious. And I've spoken to a lot of people in my family about it, like during my recovery journey, because I think it's important to look back on that. And Before the age of 18, like before that age, there was absolutely nothing, no signs, no inkling I would ever develop an eating disorder. And I've spoken to teachers from when I was younger, nothing. It just, it literally just appeared. It really did appear. It wasn't a growing thing. Once it started, it grew bigger and bigger, but there was no cue for it.
0: Mm. So how do you make sense of that now? I guess looking back, coming out the other side. I don't think I do. Mm.
1: Sure. I think I just accept that it happened. I think for so long I was trying to find Oh, surely people would ask me, oh, well, how were you breastfed as a child? Or, oh, well, was there anything? Did you have attachment issues when you were young? Did you really hate going to school? Were you bullied? There was nothing. I've been through lists and lists and spoken to so many different therapists trying to find, oh, there was a sign for it that I missed when I was seven. And after about Seven years of searching. I really just had to be like, no, this is something that just came, and I'm going to accept that. And it was really difficult because I think it was difficult for my family too because obviously they were like, well, surely we could have stopped this, but they couldn't have.
0: Mm. So it sounds like perhaps a real frustration for you in a way, like always like trying to find the thing. At least back in you know in the yeah to try and find the thing that was had caused it set it off, but actually, perhaps it's been more helpful just to come to a place more of acceptance that this is just something that happened. And yeah, it's not like there was a massive trauma or something really, really difficult that set it off.
1: Yeah, completely. I've just had to accept it, but not have to. I've also, I am accepting of it. I do accept it. It's not begrudgingly anymore. It's Mm. like honest acceptance.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I guess you're sort of saying like, perhaps when you got to America and you were looking back, you realised that you had been really anxious about going. So do you think, did the eating disorder kind of help you somehow deal with that anxiety? Yeah. Yeah. Even though it wasn't a conscious, I'm using this to cope. (laughs) Completely. It it spoke for me. Mm, Okay. So can you just say a bit more about that, I guess, because I think sometimes it's quite confusing, I think, for people to understand how an eating disorder can be a coping strategy, even if an unconscious one. But sure. how did it speak for you? You say a bit more I about think that,
1: that. It meant that I didn't have to say, oh, I'm worried about going to America or I'm worried about university or what if I don't make friends? Because all those little worries that I couldn't control, I could control what I was eating and exercising. And it was my way of getting my daily hit of I know what's going on or I've controlled something today or I've done something right today without having to think of those fears that really I couldn't even begin to contemplate what it was going to be like in university in the other side of the world. But I could contemplate what I was going to eat, or what I was going to tell someone I've eaten, or how I went about my day. And I think as a coping mechanism, it gave me something else to focus on. So when you have an eating disorder, it doesn't just consume meal times; it's all consuming, it's all day, all night. And I think that it gave me something to think about all day and all night that wasn't everything else that I was really scared of that I couldn't put into words. Mm, yeah
0: and that's really helpful the way you've explained that. so it was something that you could control, I guess wasn't it it probably felt quite safe. it was you know certain things that you could focus on that felt a bit more manageable because you perhaps couldn't even go there with where your real yeah. worries and concerns were it was just unfathomable almost.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely.
0: Okay, so can you tell us a bit more about the treatments that you've had? Because I know you had some US based treatment and also some UK based treatment, and they were quite sort of different, weren't they, in what you experienced?
1: Yeah. So I went to treatment in the UK first, and it was 10 years ago. So things were different than they are now. And I know that treatment in the UK has come so far, and treatment in the US and in general, recognizing eating disorders. And I was there for about six weeks until I went to treatment in the US. And the difference was just astounding. Like it wasn't even just the difference in the locations or things that were uncontrollable as such, it was a lot of the ways people were treated. So for example, the UK, a lot of people in treatment were those who have uh, unhealthy BMI. And I'm totally against BMI. I wrote a teacher's article about it last month. And I talk a lot about why we shouldn't be using BMI. But in the UK, it was very much based on it. Whereas in the US, when I mentioned BMI, they kind of looked at me like, what are you talking about? We don't do it like that. And maybe they did and just didn't tell me. But Speaking to people I know now who work in the industry and in therapy centers and treatment centers in the US, they're like, no, we don't do it by BMI at all. And so that was really interesting for me because when I got to America, I was really hooked on my BMI. And they were like, why? Do you? And it was because in the UK, that was the language they were using to me. They were saying, oh, but your BMI, oh, but your BMI. And so I thought that was really interesting. And the centers in America are much bigger. In my opinion, ones I went to, which of course is a bit harder because there's many more of you, but there's also trained staff who are with you all day, so it's not just staff that pop in and out for meals. They're with you in your groups, they're with you at nighttime watching a movie, and so they really get to know you as a person, as opposed to get to know your eating disorder. And I think for me, that's something I found really important, and something I really try and take into my teaching, is that I get to know the child, not just their academics. And I think that's what really helped me, that personal connection. And hopefully that's what helps my children learn in school. But it was just a stark difference. And it's weird. I guess it's like there's so many different forms of treatment for physical illnesses that there are so many different ones for mental health. And it's not one size fits all.
0: And what kind of therapy did you have in the US? Was there a sort of civic type or several different types of therapy?
1: So in the US, it was a bit like going to school. We had like a timetable. And so we had psychodrama, we had CBT, we had DBT, we had like body therapy, which is all about exploring our body physically. So like we would, for example, like paint our feet and then print them places. And that was really fun. And we also had animal therapy, which is why I now take, I've got my dog, Nell, not Dolly, is trained as a therapy dog and I take her to school with me because that was kind of life-changing for me. And in the US, they knew how much I loved dogs and knew how much I miss dogs because they got to know me. And so I was given more pet therapy than, say, I was other therapy because they could see that certain types weren't as effective with me. And that's what I really liked as well about the system. It was tailored to you. So they knew that the dog worked for me and they knew that it helped me. And so I got to see the dog more, not because I just loved dogs, even though, of course, that helped. And so I had, yeah, we had all sorts of therapy. And then we also had group therapy once a day where there were six of you and you really got to know each other. And it was after lunch from one to two with the same therapist every day with the same six people. And if someone left and, or left treatment, another one would come in and they'd be your primary group. And they might not have been your closest friends in treatment, but they definitely got to know you and were probably the most helpful during the day if anything happened and I think that connection again it was all about connection and community whereas in the UK I had therapy daily which was personal whereas in the US it wasn't personal each day it was only personal once a week so I think it was really interesting
0: Mm, you know really interesting I mean it sounds like when talking about the US treatment that you had such a personalized approach that they really got to know you and they met you much more where you were at and I guess as human beings, that's what we're all looking for, isn't it? And you know, having that connection and relationships. And, you know, that's something that you really experienced in that treatment.
1: Yeah, I think it was, but also that in the US, due to the system of treatment and insurance and health insurance, a lot of people only can go for like two months and then their insurance cuts and they have to go back. Like when I was there, I had a woman that came back in three times. She was there for two weeks, left for a week, got sent back. And that whole like changing isn't going to help her and it wasn't going to help anyone but that's the way the system worked. whereas in the UK I felt like people were in for although they were in for a prolonged period of time it was all together and therefore they could actually make headway so mm-hmm.
0: yeah i no, sure so pros and cons really and in terms of the BMI and the sort of body mass index I think it's so interesting how the difference in focus there but you were saying so I think before we sort of came online and in the US it wasn't just kind of people with anorexia nervosa, you had people of all different sort of body shapes and sizes. Is that right? It was much more kind of diverse.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Until I'd gone to America, I'd never, this sounds crazy, because until I'd gone to America, although I'd been in an eating disorder center for six weeks, I'd never met anyone with bulimia, which is just, when I said that to people in America, they were like, what are you talking about? And so I think that, I mean, when I was in the US, I was 18 and there were people there that were 70. There were men, there were women, there were other genders. There was every eating disorder, every co-eating disorder, comorbidity, like everything. Whereas in the UK, I was in a room with people within 10 years of my age, all women with anorexia. Mm.
0: So... Being exposed to a kind of greater diversity of bodies and genders and ages, like, did you find that quite helpful in terms of like perhaps challenging the eating disorder and just helping you work on your issues?
1: I think it was quite like a rude awakening, to be honest, to myself, that other things exist out there because when you're in your, deep in your eating disorder, you're so cellular. But And I also think it helped because you could talk to people about experiences and they couldn't relate directly, whereas they could relate. So the competitiveness within an eating disorder is like crazy. And I think that when you are with someone who's got the same eating disorder as you, or the same diagnoses as no two eating disorders are the same, you can either be, they used to say partners in crime or partners in recovery. And you can really become partners in crime and compete to have the best eating disorder, aka the worst. Mm -hmm. And I think that when I was surrounded by people who had different eating disorders to me, I would say things and they're like, but that doesn't make sense because, whereas instead of like gearing me up and cheering me on. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, that really helped because they became my partners in recovery. And that's not to say that I didn't make really close friends with people with anorexia. One person I still keep in contact with today also had anorexia because the shared experience helps but it meant that in those deep moments I could go to someone who was in my primary group they tried to do it really logically in my primary group who didn't have like my diagnoses and would like could check me could say but that doesn't make sense with this or that doesn't and really like question you about it without it being like but you also have this
0: Mm. Yeah, no, it sounds really helpful. And I wonder as well, very helpful, perhaps hearing that from another patient or kind of peer rather than a therapist or someone oh, in an authority. Definitely.
1: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Like sometimes, if you were particularly worried about someone or something, you could go to their primary therapist and tell them. And the therapist would actually be like, okay, I want you to tell them that and bring you into the room with them. And you'd be like, I can't tell them that. And they'd be like, it's a bit more effective coming from you than it is for me. And they'd be there to navigate it. Mm. but they facilitate those conversations. Time for a short advertisement break.
0: Now, I know we talk a lot about food freedom on this podcast and how important it is to take care of yourself mentally and physically as you learn to navigate a culture inundated with toxic messaging. One of the best ways to take care of yourself is through exercise. But I know it can be really hard to find an exercise program that isn't rooted in these toxic messages and doesn't feel triggering. Well, I recently met Katie, the owner of an amazing new exercise company called WeShape. And WeShape doesn't focus on calorie counting, tracking how much you work out or making you feel bad about your body to get you motivated. Instead, they create a customized exercise routine for you that helps you connect with and care for your body rather than feeling pressure to change it. They help you learn to set intentions that come from a place of self care rather than self judgment. And they support you every step of the way with an amazing community and live coaching so you can make exercise a self care practice that helps you feel better in your body and about your body. Plus, they're giving listeners of the show the chance to try it out for two full weeks for free. Just head on over to www.weshape.com forward slash freedom or check out the link in the show notes to get started today. And Florence, how did you then transition from like, it sounds like your UK and your US treatment, they were kind of all like intensive programs. And how did you then transition to sort of like, you know, working like as an outpatient and sort of taking more independence in your recovery?
1: Yeah, so when I did PHP, which was partial hospitalization, so I didn't stay overnight. I stayed out of the treatment center and we were in charge of going there each day From breakfast till dinner, apart from on Sundays. And so I did that for about two months, or no, sorry, one month. And that was like a big transition. But some of the people were the same, and some people were doing the journey with you each day. And it was a bit harder as I didn't live in the US. So many of the people who were from the US, for example, they had cars or family nearby and things like that. But they really helped me and supported me in facilitating that. And then I couldn't stay there any longer due to visa reasons. So I came back here and when I was in America, it was funny, I kind of did interviews with eating disorder therapists and dieticians that were here with my team there to try and communicate my needs because I hadn't had anyone here that I felt exactly fit. And so they got names of people they knew. And they did some research for me and we kind of rang around and sat on Zoom to Skype. It was two different eating disorder therapists and talked about like my needs and see if we would kind of match up. And I'm really lucky that I found an amazing dietitian and therapist here who is actually from New Zealand, but she just, she worked the same way that they worked. And it was actually really, really smooth transition and handover, although emotional but smooth
0: Mm, fantastic so then you were able to kind of continue with that sort of similar approach of someone that was very aligned with the way that you were used to working but you so you could like have that ongoing support in your recovery
1: yeah definitely and I was like to my therapist then make sure they know all my ways to get around things because I really didn't want to relapse so I was like make sure they know what's going on and also we had like family therapy sessions over the phone, which aren't great, but because of the phone situation, but yeah.
0: Mm. Oh, and then, and how long do you feel like you've sort of been out the other side of all of that now? Like, so I know for all of us, it's always an ongoing journey, I think, isn't it? With our personal development, with our healing, but where do you feel for you? Where do you really feel like you've much more had your head above water with the eating disorder?
1: I feel like for two years, it's like not been a part of my life besides advocating for it. I feel like before then, yes, I was in recovery because I was doing what I needed to do. But I don't think I was necessarily thinking how I should have thought about it. But then again, I don't know what's the right thing like is I don't know whether I say recovery is when your body and mind are healthy, because I truly think the voices have got quieter over time, but. I still think that sometimes they'll just come up and that's going to be something I live with. And I know that I've spoken to friends who are recovering from other mental health illnesses or addiction and they say, oh yeah, it still pops up, but you're still in recovery. You haven't acted on the urge and that doesn't mean your mind is relapsing.
0: So can you tell us a bit more, Florence, about the work you're now doing sort of to sort of educate others and to with the sort of eating disorder prevention side of things?
1: Yes. So as a teacher, when I trained to be a teacher, Eating disorders were probably mentioned for like four minutes tops in a whole year of training. And I learned how to teach short division and long division like 600 times. Well, I would say at least once a week for the whole year. And it's funny because when I was younger, you say, but we'll always have a cat. We won't always have a calculator, all that. But now the kids say, i have a cat. Yeah, you will have a calculator. That's just a fact. Like they're never going to be without the calculator. And I think that education is obviously tricky but I do think that we're focusing on the wrong things and I find it really difficult that you're going to train teachers who are around children so often you train them to look for dyslexia you they trained us to look for spot signs of ADHD and autism and always said to speak up for the children to get them what they need yet of when a child has an eating disorder they probably don't know they have one because they're too young to know about those things And in that, I mean, all the children that I teach and have ever taught know what autism is or know what ADHD is, because there are other children in the class or in the school with it. However, if you ask them what an eating disorder was, I think they'd be really, really quite confused unless it's something that's affecting them personally. And even then, I've had conversations with parents saying, oh, no, my sister, so the child's aunt has an eating disorder. They don't. My child doesn't know. And It's hard because, of course, they're young and I completely understand you don't want to feed them ideas and you don't want to tell them things that are going to scare them and take away the joy that they get from eating. However, I think it is important that these things are taught in an age appropriate way to children, but more importantly, to the adults that surround these children. I taught children who don't eat with their parents. They eat with their brothers and sisters in the morning or at breakfast club, and then they have lunch at school. And then when they go home, a babysitter or a friend's mum or someone else feeds them, and their parents are at work. And so how are parents meant to learn to spot the signs of an eating disorder until it's too late? And of course, it's never too late. You can always seek help and treatment. But early intervention is key, and it's proven as key. And it frustrates me that teachers are taught how to teach comma splices yet they're not taught how to see that a child is unable to say I need help I don't understand what's happening to me I'm scared yeah
0: yeah it well, sounds fantastic the work you're doing and I think it's so interesting actually like when you're talking about like these other sort of diagnoses how as teachers you're very much encouraged to you know, advocate for the child, pick up on the signs, you know, really step in, be supportive. But like with eating disorders, I think, you know, as you're saying, really, I think there's a lot of fear around addressing these issues sometimes, and, and also just a real lack of awareness. Because I think, you know, a lot of adults are struggling with their relationship with food as well, aren't they? But perhaps not always oh, definitely.
1: Yeah. A lot of adults are struggling with their relationships around food, and those messages are being passed on to their children. And I think that if So I run workshops for teachers, like educating them on the intervention science and for parents too. And it's sometimes you get parents afterwards saying, I actually, I really need to stop saying that to my child. I've been saying that to my child. And I didn't realize that that is something that I've internalized and I don't want to pass on to them. So I've had parents who have quite orthorexic views. And when I tell them, well, maybe don't say this to your child, like you can't have that if you can, have, you can't have a cake until you finish your broccoli. Like if you don't phrase it like that and think of new ways around it. And they've been saying like, wow, is it too late? And I'm like, it's not too late. It's never too late. And there are some amazing books on there and there's amazing resources everywhere. And I think it's just about us all choosing to change our language together because there is still a stigma around it. And parents still stigmatize food and body shape and weight. And there are some parents who are breaking the barriers and that's fantastic. And same with some teachers, but it's unfair to say the others aren't doing it because they just don't know and what they've been taught.
0: Yeah. And I think it's a tricky thing, isn't it? It's like a sort of collective unconscious awareness, isn't it? I think, you know, we're so indoctrinated in a way with (laughs) weight stigma diet culture that we just kind of don't question it often. And we think of that as normal. So a lot of it is, you know, people are doing the best they can and I guess the tricky thing as well, I'm thinking sort of Florence. You know, in schools, I'm thinking like my own children. They're in primary school. They were weighed. They had like healthy week where they were told that kind of you know they shouldn't be
1: eating any sugar. Yeah, you know, I, I just think it's just not helpful, is it? No. They have the weight National Weight Child Measurement Program, which I recently wrote an article about abolishing it because they come into school in year six and they weigh all the children when they're 11. And parents get a letter home saying your child is the correct BMI, your child is above the BMI, your child is below the BMI. And it's kind of like grading your parenting based on your child's body. Mm. And it drives me absolutely crazy because I've had children who ask a nurse what their weight is and the nurse will tell them and then they'll go and tell the next person. And it's like when we used to say, oh, what did you get on the spelling test? Oh, I put this answer. Oh, you put that answer. But in the playground, they're just going around telling each other their weights. Mm. And it's so toxic and parents can opt out of that. So when your child goes into reception, you can opt out. It's a very long form online and they don't make it easy. But There is a guide by the Body Happy Org where you can fill it in and it tells you how to do it, but they don't make it easy, but you can opt out and your child doesn't get weighed. And I really, really recommend it. And what's lovely and always like makes my heart so happy is that my first ever class were in year six last year and they knew they'd read my article because their teacher showed it to them and over half of them opted out. They said then and there, I'm not doing it because the child can opt out too.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's fantastic to hear there, Florence. Actually, just the influence that you have had there, actually, through your experience, and just what a positive impact that has been, and just showing how, I guess, it's never too late to learn and shift our beliefs, isn't it? You know, I think you know, just yeah, very inspiring that half that class.
1: <laughs> Honestly, that's, a, that's the thing I'm most proud about in my teaching. Whatever my class got for their Sats, or how many of them can pass a phonics test, that is. Honestly, even that 15 of them did that is the thing I'm most proud of in five years. Mm, yeah,
0: no, well done you. So, Florence, can you just share as well some of the things that you might be encouraging the teachers and adults around the children to look out for as possible early signs of an eating
1: disorder? Sure. So, for example, a lot of fussy eating, but that often follows a trend of food groups, is what I've found. So, for example, not just only liking the food that they like because it's a pizza or cheese or pasta or salad, whatever they like, but it's choosing to each day leave a certain section of food groups. And I think schools do portion food like quite separately, like protein, veg, carbs. And so I think it's looking at that. I also think it's children reading backs of packets. I've had many children read backs of packets and say, oh, but this has this much salt in it, or this has, how interesting is this? And it's like that little initial thing that clicks on and they start realizing, oh, these numbers actually mean something. They're not just on the back of a packet. I think that it's especially difficult with packed lunches in the UK because children make comments on each other's both packed lunch and home lunch and I just tell your children like you don't comment on anyone's food that's what I tell my kids like you're eating lunch you don't comment on anyone's food you're not talking about food I encourage teachers to give table topics So, okay, today I want you to find out what everyone on your table read over summer and something that they can come back to you with to take that conversation away from the food at the table. Because so often you go through the lunch hall and you hear children being like, oh, you have that. Oh, my mom said that's not good for me. Or, oh, my dad said I have to eat this. I can't have that. And just drawing the conversation away from food at table time, not only when they're with their friends, but also with themselves. Social media, I think that just making sure your child has a healthy relationship with social media and checking who they follow, checking to see if they're following people who are promoting eating disorders because they are out there. And also with exercise, making sure that they're doing it because they love it or they're having fun. So really getting your children into team sports or sports they find really fun and silly and activities as opposed to I've got children who are nine who go to the gym with their parents and so I take it away from that because not only does that encourage the behaviour on the child's part but it shows them this is what their parent is doing and no matter what children look up to their parents and so if their parent is doing it they'll want to do it too.
0: Yeah and it's so helpful just to sort of point out some of those signs and I particularly like the whole thing around kind of movement because I think as a society, we have got into this, like, go hard, go home, like, yeah. no no amount of exercise is too much. You know, people are put on pedestals, aren't they, for like, just striving, striving, striving. Yeah, it's not really healthy. We've kind of lost that bigger picture of health.
1: Yeah, and it's always the boys in my class as well. And a lot of teachers will always say, oh, I need bench move. Can I have some boys? That's just not me. I'm always saying, oh, I need bench move. And I just pick three children. But a lot of the boys will... Make really small comments like, oh, yeah, I go to the gym or something like, oh, no, I bet you can't lift this weight. And it's just those little comments that I catch that obviously once or twice it's fine. They're going to make comments. But they, like, as soon as I hear one of my ears like prick up, I'm like a dog, like, okay, I know they've made one comment. Let's keep a track on that to see how many more they make.
0: Yeah. And I think it's a great point actually that you just mentioned around boys there as well, because I think they're, you know, historically, We've thought about eating disorders being much more kind of feminine, female thing, but actually, like many boys are also struggling, aren't they? And particularly, perhaps, tends to be more around kind of exercise in the gym, doesn't it? Rather than the pursuit of thinness in the same way.
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely more around body ideals as opposed to anything else for boys. But I don't know. But the boys I've encountered through my journey, that's been more of the root of the issue. Hmm.
0: So Florence have you found as well that schools and you know organizations are receptive to the training that you are
1: offering? Sometimes I mean it's really interesting a lot of them say but we're not like we're a school we're not like doctors and it kind of makes me laugh cuz I have a friend that works in year 1 and she's currently like in her curriculum they've got teaching children to clean their teeth and I'm like but we're not dentists and so that kind of makes me giggle but I do just take it with a pinch of salt and say okay I'm always just here if you need me because I want people to know that they can come back to me in case they see it in a trend and I found a lot of younger schools are quite hesitant like junior schools a lot of teachers do want to know more and I get a lot of Instagram messages from teachers asking me to send them some resources on how to talk to parents about it or if they can do any reading so around it and I know that I'm fortunate that I work with a lot of people who are really want to know more and want to learn more and I think that especially the younger generation of teachers see why it's important that we know what's going on not just on the surface level but I do think that I have met teachers of all ages that are trying and it's just hard because there's hardly enough time to do anything in schools and so giving up an hour a week to staff training that I run which is free is still a lot for schools to say oh but we could have been learning and filling out and check boxes that we need to do for maths
0: mm-hmm. yeah and it's really challenging isn't it I mean I just noticed from some of my clients who are teachers that their schedule is so full-on But I mean, I think it's incredible, Florence, because you're really making some powerful ripples of change here, aren't you? I think, you know, I just think you have incredible dedication and passion to this cause. You know, it really comes across very
1: strongly. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I hope to do it full-time one day, but when that happens, we will see. Mm. So, Florence,
0: kind of thinking of sort of drawing this toward to a close, if you, big question really, but what would you say is like a, a one big takeaway in terms of when we're really thinking about eating disorders prevention, you know, improving our children's well being, mental health, with food, etc. You know, what is one of the main things that we can really do as a sort of collective and society to really make that shift?
1: I think it's to teach children that diet culture is taught to them from a young age and make them aware of everything all the bias that's out there for for diet culture and the way like supermarkets are laid out make it interesting make it exciting be like oh why do you think those are on the middle aisle why do you think those are on the front aisle and get them really thinking about the wider perception around why certain bodies are idealized and get books in their classrooms that show bodies in every different shape color form size all with powerful voices that are doing something in the world And just when and question them, children love asking you questions and they actually love being asked questions. If they say something, question them. oh, why do you think that? It's not a yes or no answer. It's just interesting to see where those thoughts come from and challenge them because they will. And it's just lead by example. And that's why I think it's hard because it's hard to lead by example, especially when it's ingrained in all of us. I'm sure I'm not perfect. I'm sure there are things I've said that aren't exactly on the right side of diet culture, but it's just to really try and pay attention and call each other out, call out your colleagues because you're not calling them out in an unfair way. You're calling them out to do better.
0: Mm -hmm. You've mentioned some books, resources a couple of times as well. Are there any particular books that you really would recommend to anyone who's wanting to find out more about all of this, just educate themselves more?
1: I would recommend Fat Talk by Virginia Smith. It's all about parenting and diet culture. And I've read it and it's just fantastic. I go back to it when sometimes a child makes a comment and I go back to it to be like, oh, what's that thing? Also, Body Happy Kids. That's a really good one by Molly Forbes. And yeah, those are the two I always point out to other teachers and I always signal in training and bring with me for others to look at. But on my Instagram, there are more. I just don't have them at the top of my head.
0: Yeah, they sure know. Well, they're lovely. I mean, that's great. I shall put the Fat Talk and the Body Happy Kids ones in the show notes. But then I guess people can always reach out to you on Instagram and, you know, get more info from you. So Florence, where can people find you if they want to get in touch?
1: So I'm at Growth Not Grades on Instagram. And there's a link there to my personal Instagram, Florence. But if on Growth Not Grades, I point everything to do with school. Or you can email me at growthnotgrades at gmail.com and I'll always reply on there. In you know, a lovely Or you can LinkedIn me. I guess that's another way. I don't know if people use that to check in with people. But yeah, I'm on LinkedIn as well. If you do want to book for like an organization to have a talk or a workshop, whether online or in real life.
0: Okay, brilliant. And LinkedIn, are you Growth Not Grades again?
1: Florence Taglight. Sure. Lovely. Florence, tag like yeah, like to argue it, and then like a light in the sky. Yeah, they're lovely.
0: Okay, they're no, brilliant. I'll well, make sure all of those are in the show notes. That's brilliant, Florence. Okay, well, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think you are, you know, making some really powerful kind of movements of change. I think it's really inspiring. You know, I can just hear just how much influence you're already having in terms of just like shaking up diet culture and educating us all. Yeah, it's fantastic stuff. So, you know, thank you so much for all the work you're doing. And I just wish you all the best with it going forward.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate you having me and I appreciate everything you're doing, you giving a voice to me and giving a voice to all the people that you have had on your podcast. I listen eagerly. And I just, yeah, thank you for all the amazing work that you're doing within the community. It's a joint mission. Oh, thank you, Florence. So I
0: hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. And do go and check out all of Florence's info in the show notes. If you're not following me already on Instagram, you might want to seek me out at the eating disorder therapist underscore and for further support with your relationship with food, do go to the eating If you haven't already got your ticket for our inspiring prevention of eating disorders and body image issues, do go to the link in the show notes. It's Saturday, the 30th of September, lots of workshops and talks on Zoom going to be a really inspiring and uplifting day. If you enjoy this podcast, I'll be so grateful if you'd follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today. And I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon.